And so when we talk about design, it really comes down to the things that developers really hit on, which are your unit mix. How do you address the street? How do you, how does your building, you know, uh, it, how's your building sited? How does it, how does it, the sunlight hit the pool? Like does the sunlight hit the pool? Let's get ready to scale. guys, thanks for joining us for yet another episode. Today, I have with me Antonia Botero. She is the principal of MAD Project, a boutique project management consulting firm that focuses on the design side of developments, as well as some other real estate operational and project efficiencies. Antonia is a registered architect in Florida, New York, and Utah. Prior to that, her real estate experience ranged from large-scale multifamily conversions and ground-up construction projects in Manhattan to branded and independent hotel renovations across multiple markets uh, within the U.S. She previously was a senior project manager at MCR Development. And before all of that, she actually started off her career in luxury landscape design and architecture. Um, she has a bachelor's of architecture from the University of Miami and a master's in architecture and urban design from MIT. And Antonia is joining us today from Park City, Utah. So Antonia, welcome to the show. Thanks, Jeanette. Thanks for having me. We're very excited to have you. Um, you know, it's interesting. I rarely ever get to speak with someone about design elements. So I'm really curious to hear uh, some of your thoughts in that regard. But before we jump into that, can you just share with us what is it that led you to start Mad Project? So I think it was a couple of things. I, I think, um, you know, for being on the design development side, I always really wanted to run teams a certain way. And I think at some point after you you work for bigger shops or you work in, in that kind of environment for a little while, you realize that, you know, if you want to run things a certain way, the only way to do that is, is to have your own shop. So that was a little bit of it. Um, also, some of it was related to, you know, uh, the pandemic and 2020, uh, even though I started my shop in, in 2017 officially, uh, I, I decided to grow it nationally during the pandemic. It was it was kind of a a good time, and just a bunch of factors came together, and and so it 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 really worked out. Um, so a little bit a little bit of good timing, a little bit of luck, but I think underlying that is really the premise of of doing really good work um, and working with people that that I respect and and that. Um, and that do really good work themselves too. And, and part of the reason I respect them, part of the reason that we were, we're a really, really good team. Yeah, that definitely makes sense. And it's really helpful when things align well. Um, now your, your background is very interesting to me. So one of the things that I'm curious about is how much of a role does design actually play in development or even uh, standing assets that people probably maybe overlook? Yeah. Well, I think so. There's a little bit of uh, of, and that, that's a really interesting question. And I people really talk to me about specifically design when we're, when we're talking about it in, in podcasts or or even just on on interviews for work. Um, and and it's really kind of separating the idea of design um, and decoration. And it was I was actually having a conversation on Twitter with someone yesterday about that, but. Um, people think of design and people think of like 
oh, we're going to do blue cabinets or we're going to do, you know, a special sort of brick on our facade and that's design. And while it is an element of design, it's really not the kind of design that ends up really changing the way that people inhabit their space. And so when we talk about design, it really comes down to the things that developers really hit on, which are your unit mix. How do you address the street? How do you, how does your building, you know, uh, it, how's your building sited? How does it, how does it, the sunlight hit the pool? Like, does the sunlight hit the pool? Um, do you have a roof terrace? And those are major design elements that at the end of the day are actually going to be the things that, that make projects successful. So, I mean, design is, is wildly important. And I think the, the part that, that is really that we focus on um, at MAD Project is really making sure that design is considered and is thoughtful. And so we're really going to be looking at projects from the beginning where we plan. Uh, and that's a very collaborative conversation with the, the developers that we work with to really establish, you know, the, the market that they're playing in and, and really understand what the needs of the project are going to be. And so that's really where design comes from. It's, it's less about what colors you paint the rooms and more about how your building addresses the, the challenges of, of the street. That is really interesting, um, especially just simply because we're not in the development side of the, the house, you know, so I haven't had to actually uh, had the fun of thinking about things like that before, but that's a really cool point. Uh, what kind of advice do you give to, you know, owner and operators like, uh, like us here at Blue Lake, where we're going in and we're acquiring, you know, an already standing asset, uh, going in and just doing a value add uh, strategy? What are some elements that you would advise, you know, multifamily owners and operators that are coming in and acquiring assets to be able to do if yeah. basically those bigger development decisions have already been made for them in the past? Well, it's a mix, and I think it, it it applies regardless of whether you're you're doing development or if or if you're buying existing assets. Because the really the start of it should be asking yourself as a as a firm who you want to be, like what are you guys about, and and that's really going to determine what assets you acquire in the first place. So that's the same for developers, right? Like who do you want to be, and then that's going to determine where you buy land and what kind of land you buy. So I think at the end of the day, the, the premise is really the same. And then it's going to be a matter of what you do with it. And, and if it's very clear to you who you want to be and what your brand is about and what you guys, you know, what your product uh, you're, you're bringing to the market, that's going to determine a lot of those decisions that you make, regardless of whether you're building from scratch or whether you're simply um, renovating or repositioning um, an existing asset. I, I think when you find places that have a really clear thesis, it shows, it feels really different. Whereas, um, and, and that's regardless of whether it's luxury housing or whether it's more like work for workforce or affordable housing, it doesn't matter. Um, as long as the thesis is clear, the, the place is gonna be cohesive. It's gonna have a very different feeling than, than if there's no strategy or if the strategy is sloppy. So that's what I always tell people, like think really hard about what you want to put out there and then base your decisions on that and, and be, you know, disciplined about it. That's excellent advice. I absolutely love it. Uh, very cool. Um, okay. Now, one of the things that I'm curious to know also is, you know, what you think are, are going to be some of the most important elements that 
we need to incorporate from a design standpoint um, in the future? What do you think are some of the most futuristic design elements that you've seen? Which ones do you think might actually take a hold and begin trending? Um, you know, just very curious. Well, I think that's a tricky one too, because I, I think there's a lot of technology out there and there, there are a lot of really exciting sort of um, things coming up in, in kind of a research and academic capacity. And, and, and those things could be really cool. But I think at the end of the day, some of the things that we need in order to have affordable housing or more housing uh, are not necessarily connected to the stuff that is happening in academia. So I think that kind of understanding that difference and like the different technologies um, and, and, and the fact that some of them don't necessarily translate to the current market, I think that that um, is a really important moment to note. And so having said that, there, there are a lot of trends and things out there that um, I wouldn't, you know, they're shiny objects. And so I think that keeping um, a little bit, you know, being a little bit more grounded in terms of like, what are the things that are upcoming? I think that things that we should absolutely take into consideration are, you know, the environmental impact of building. I think that's just something that, um, you know, climate change is real. It's not going away. We need to be mindful of it. And I think that finding a, a good balance between, you know, environmental requirements for our, our future buildings and still making our buildings, you know, profitable, because at the end of the day, if these investments are not profitable, they're not going to get built. And so keeping that kind of balance clear um, is really important. So that's something to watch on the environmental side. And, and that, that may mean like better, you know, building technologies, better material technologies, better sort of those things that are just going to incrementally make things a little bit better. Um, so that that's, I think those are the things that are, and then it's, it's an interesting topic because everyone expects this to be super splashy and very like, oh, it's there's this new technology that is going to change everything. And I don't think that it's going to be so mainstream exciting. It's exciting for people like me um, where I'm interested in building technologies and then all of a sudden we can have better windows or we can have better appliances that, um, you know, that are more energy efficient or that make your life a little bit better. Those things are exciting to me. And so I think that we're going to find the cool things in reality in, in, in those niches and less in like the super splashy, like 3D printed, like I, you know, those things are academic exercises that are amazing and are super cool. But at the end of the day, they're not really going to be the things that are going to have like massive changes in the way we inhabit our spaces. Um, I, I think that other than than kind of the, the environmental aspect and, and a little bit tied to it is I think um, maybe a little bit more, um, and this is maybe a hope for me, but maybe a little bit of a counter uh, counter movement to a lot of the consumerism that we see, like in the influencers and people selling all kinds of stuff online that is like really cheap decoration and really like these shelves <laughs> like full of crap. Uh, I, I'm hoping that we that we go in the environmental route to say, well, you know, maybe we don't need so much crap, and maybe instead we could just do like a beautiful blaster wall instead of like a shelf of useless stuff. But that's just me being hopeful. Um, so yeah, I think it's really gonna be minor, not minor, major at the end of the day, but but more subtle changes that, that simply just improve our spaces over, over a long period of time. Very interesting. Now I have absolutely no expertise whatsoever, but I actually kind of agree with you. I don't think that a lot of these 
really splashy elements that people see are really going to take hold. I'm not real interested in having like a meta pod in the middle of my house. And I don't think anybody else is really going to be expecting that in their apartments. Um, I, I agree. I actually don't think a lot of those things take hold. I think they're nifty for about five minutes and then that's about it. And I think that people basically have lived the same way for a long time and will probably continue to live the same way for a long time. Something that people overlook and kind of to your point is like human and human proportions. And that's just an interesting thing, because if you look at kind of how people lived in antiquity, even uh, the proportions of dwellings were just really different. Like spaces were a lot shorter and people, we know this, have gotten bigger. And as people have gotten bigger, are living, you know, the thresholds, entryways like have gotten taller. Like it's just so we we're actually I think we've been pretty smart at, at you know, understanding human proportion and, and really kind of designing spaces around them. I think one of the conversations we've had a lot um, and it comes up a bunch in apartment living is people say, well, kitchens, you know, they're too big or they're too small or there's always some sort of like rub about kitchens. But I always tell people like during the 60s, there was this huge, you know, um, the idea of like domesticity, like, dur- you know, during the war. And a lot of what happened during that time was people got super fascinated about like really efficient kitchen design, right? And so you had to be, it was like the kitchen triangle. You couldn't be more than a certain distance from certain things in order to make your cooking experience more efficient. And so at the end of the day, what that did is it made very comfortable kitchens. Like we understand what those proportions are already. Like there is no, you know, humans are not, we're not going to get you know, we're not going to grow another three or four feet in the next like 10 years. So it's not like we need to completely change the proportions of our living spaces. And so that's kind of, you know, a little bit to your point is like we, the human scale has remained, you know, has changed very slowly. Um, and for the most part, we have actually kept up with changing our dwelling sizes to, to account for it. So um, I think, you know, historically, that's a really interesting and I, I rarely get to talk about these sort of like the, the academic side of architecture that, that I came from. So, um, yeah, I don't I don't think those things are going to change much. And, and I think in terms of like the modular and the prefab, um, uh, you know, we've been we've been trying to do that for a very long time. We've actually been trying to do prefab since the 20s. Um, I don't think that the future is so much there. I think we're going to see more changes in technologies like mass timber. Um, I hope so, at least. And again, that's also one of those that on its face to the mainstream, it may seem like not a super splashy thing, like a 3D printed house. But I do think that ultimately it's going to have a much bigger impact um, on the way we build and the way we live, because it it just, you know, mass timber, I think, is a it it really is kind of the future. And I'm hoping that building codes are starting to um, acknowledge it. Some people are really doing some great work um, to, to really get it codified and, and really get it so that we are able to build with it under um, local jurisdictions. Um, and I think ultimately it's going to, it's going to be a better um, move way forward. But I, again, it's not going to be something that is going to radicalize and change things. I mean, construction and real estate move really slowly. You know, it takes us a really quick building the, the fastest I've seen a building built is 20 months, you know, 18, 20 months. And some buildings take 10 years to build, like the really big ones, the really sort of the stuff that we see on magazines. And so you're talking about an industry that moves at that pace. You're not going to see any one change um, kind of radicalize a, an entire industry that not only that, but it's not homogeneous at all. 
it's like every market is different, every building is different, every site is different, every development group is different. You know, it, it's not an easy, um, it's not an easy industry to say, I'm gonna go disrupt it, which we hear often. Um, but it's when you really kind of look at it, it, it's like, well, no, the incremental small sort of things that improve it slowly, those are the things that I, I, I really hope, um, you know, we're gonna, you know, see in the future as, as you know, we create better buildings. I, I'm always very hopeful that, that, that all of us are um, really looking to create better living spaces. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I can't agree more. Um, and, you know, this is really fun and fascinating for me, too. I've never thought about the evolution of the kitchen. Um, <laughs> but, <laughs> but, you know, uh, really the evolution of, of doing better and building better. I really do like that idea very much so. Um, yeah. You know, even if it's simply with renovations, I mean, it's still improvements and, and steps in the right direction. So very cool. Now, uh, as far as building, something else I'm really interested in knowing is your perspective of how to build really innovative teams. Yeah. So let's go ahead and jump into that right after a word from our sponsor. Ready to Scale is brought to you by Blue Lake Capital, where we hunt down the best multifamily investment opportunities that we can find and invite investors to join in with us. We target Class B value-add multifamily properties across the Sun Belt. Our CEO, Ellie Perlman, invests a substantial amount of capital into every deal. This means our interests are aligned with yours. If you're an accredited investor looking to expand your portfolio and diversify sponsors, be sure to visit us at bluelake-capital.com. Blue Lake Capital, be bold, be extraordinary, and keep moving forward. All right. So Antonia, not only do you build and design buildings, but you also build and design teams. So, you know, creating a really strong, very innovative, you know, team is very challenging, regardless of whatever industry it may be. So, you know, what would you say are kind of some of the best, um, you know, best lessons that you've learned along the way or the best advice that you would provide to people that want to be able to build really innovative teams? Yeah. Um, so that's an interesting one because, you know, we've had the chance to, every time that we join a project, ultimately we, we build a team. So we build a team of outside consultants and then you have the contractor. And then sometimes we actually hire, uh, in-house for the developer that we're working with. Sometimes we just go in and build them their teams and then we sail off into the sunset. Um, and really we have never built two teams that are the same. And I think that a big part of, of a success, uh, you know, a successful team is really going to be understanding what kind of team you need. There's going to be projects where you need, you know, you need someone who's very diligent. You need someone who's on top of it every day. And not to say that you just typically don't need that on every team, on every building, but um, that takes priority over, let's say, a ton of experience. Um you know, sometimes you just need someone who is really good at keeping the trains running, regardless of whether or not they've done that specific type of project before. And so really kind of understanding what you're putting together, what kind of team are you putting together? What kind of people do you need is really um, what it comes down to. So I think when we start out or when I start out with a new team, I, I always or with a new developer before we hire the team is I kind of sit and listen and just say, hey, well, what are you doing? It kind of goes back to that whole idea of who do you want to be? And then once we kind of establish that and really understand that, then then we say, okay, well, this is going to be the plan. 
Um, and then once you put the team together, it's really going to be a matter of um, deferring to the experts, right? If I if I'm a registered architect, and but I have no professional standing in the projects that we that we work on, right? I hire the architects, and once you have an architect who's the architect of record for a project, I'm going to defer to their professional experience and their professional standing on the project to make professional project decisions. So I, you know, I think really kind of sitting with the people that you hire and saying, okay, I hired you because you're an expert. How are you going to do this? What do you recommend is going to be the way that we move forward with this, with this matter? Um, so part of that, you know, is finding the right team members appropriate for the goal. And then in addition to that, listening to them and, and really kind of paying attention, making sure um, that, that, that you're hearing them. The other thing too is making sure that um, again the the appropriateness of of the team that you hire is really going to come down to the scope. So really defining the scope for every team member is really important, and that's something that people miss often. They'll hire people, they won't necessarily tell them what the expectations are, and then they're upset when they don't meet some expectations that that they're not aware of. So I think that really kind of going through the process of saying like, what are we doing? How are we doing it? And who's the right person for it? is really a basic that a lot of people seem to miss. Some people say, oh, I need help, I need help, let me just hire someone. But then they don't necessarily think through like, well, what is this person gonna do? You know, what is their goal? And not only that, but like, what direction are we all rowing in? So yeah, I think, I think that's that, a, I think that's a really good point, but I wanna kind of stop you there because I think that part of the challenge when it comes to building a really good team is people are a very unpredictable product. You know, they just are, right? That's why we're called people because we're human and we're not machines, right? So um, when when you're going through the process of, you know, sourcing and interviewing, have you found any practices that help you to really be able to identify, you know, with greater accuracy, those that are, quote, A players versus those that are not? Yeah. So a mix of things. I think the first thing is, again, it goes back to expectations. I, I normally, whenever I'm interviewing for new team members, I always tell them, like, all the terrible things about the job. Um, and, and it's it really kind of setting it up during the interview and number one, seeing how they react to it. Some people will say, you know what, that's not a job that I want. I didn't realize that's what you were looking for. Um, and I appreciate that. So setting expectations is a big one because like you said, people are unpredictable on their own. If in addition to that, you also make, you know, make it impossible for them to predict what they're supposed to do at work. It's like, what are you, you know, that's a really difficult situation for everybody. Um, the other thing that I do a lot, um, the majority of the teams that I've hired always typically come recommended. Um, it's re really building that network. And, and generally, I have found that people who like working with other people so much that they're willing to recommend them are typically going to be other A players. So you go to like your best people and you say, who are your best friends in the industry that you would recommend and not because they're friends, but I mean like professional friends, like people that you've met along the way that you were like, that was a really great engineer. And when I go to the next project, someone says, hey, do you know a really great engineer? I'm going to be like, yes. And they, I had a great time working with them. And that's going to mean something to the person that I'm recommending them to. So that has been a, a really big one. My entire, I mean, all the teams really that we've built um, have come very well recommended every now and then. I think I've hired maybe a handful of people from like ads or, or from Twitter even, um, and they've turned out pretty good. And I think it's also because we have a really good sense 
of what those initial interviews should feel like and, and the kinds of things that I'm looking for in people. There's certain things that you can't teach people, like you can't teach urgency, you can't teach manners. And, and you know, manners is like a, a big one. I have this conversation every now and then, but like, you know, listening in meetings and, and, and understanding that you need to take notes and understanding that you need to be on time and understanding that, you know, there's, there's gonna be people in the room that know more than you do. Sometimes that ties back to manners and it's a really, it's a really squishy subject and I know people have all kinds of feelings about that, but those are things that are really hard to teach. Um, if someone doesn't know how to have a polite conversation with someone they disagree with, uh, that we find all the time in construction. It's a really um, stressful environment. People can lose sight of their emotions very easily. And if you are just going into the industry and you don't have the emotional maturity yet to fully uh, wrangle that kind of situation, you can always rely on your manners to say, you know what, I'm just gonna just gonna be quiet right now. I'll figure this out later. And then after you've learned how to handle it, then maybe you can speak up and, and, and not make it worse because you could always make it worse. So those kinds of things you see during the interview process, like how quickly does someone reply to a message? If, if they say, hey, here's my resume and I reply and I say, hey, can we set up an interview? And then they don't respond to me for 10 days. Like they're out, like you have no interest in, or urgency here. So Wow, you're generous with 10 days. <laughs> like exactly. you. That's what happened to me. Um, but it's basically, uh, you know, really understanding that um, from the moment that you have initial contact, like that's where the interview begins. The mm -hmm. interview is not like when you're actually just sitting over your resume saying like, well, tell me about this job experience. Like it, it, there's typically, you know, there's a lot of that soft part to, to people. Um, and and honestly, a lot of it comes just from experience and and, and really understanding um, people's experience and how they approach the work more so than people's technical abilities, uh, because the technical part you can teach, but the way that people approach work is, is really hard. So that, especially when you're hiring young people, um, you know, sometimes they just don't have the experience because they're 22 years old and they just, you know, they just graduated from college. So they have no experience. Um, and, and references finally, you know, that's the other thing. Um, even for people who are young, um, a professor or a peer, even um, someone who mentored them at a summer job or things like that. Um, you know, references are really are really important. And and again, they're more about in my mind, they're more about character than technical ability, um, unless you're hiring for something super specific. But that's that's generally how we put together teams, and it's it's a little bit squishy, and 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 I'm sure there's a ton of room for bias, but. Um, so far, I, I, we're very proud of the teams that we've put together and I'm very proud of my team. So it's worked yeah. out. Yeah, no, that's, those are great insights. I totally agree. Um, now I'm curious too, um, especially given the fact that you work a lot, um, you know, with, with design, I know you do a lot more than just design, but you know, there's a lot of design elements involved. How do you keep your teams from, um, avoiding burnout, creative burnout? How do you yeah. keep your own self from creative burnout? Well, that, that's actually, I mean, that's pretty hard. I think so. And then right now I'm in the, I'm in this process of building my own house and I'm the architect of record and, and there's been a lot of design burnout for my own house. And so it's been just kind of like taking breaks and saying, okay, for this week, we're going to, we're not going to talk about this tile and then next week we'll come back to it. So there's been a little bit of cycling that there. Um, the other thing too, that, that I've, you know, that we've done because my team is fully remote, has been fully remote since like 2018. So even before, um, before it became a thing, just because we were doing national projects and we were always flying. And so it just worked out. 
But I think there's there's always been that sort of um, you know the priorities for all of us and um, for me and, and looking at my people, the priorities are their relationships, their health, and their lives. Um, I, I think that the work is not that important. And, and I think, and, and that's not to say that we're softer, that in any way we're not, you know, there isn't a really high bar, but it's more a matter of recognizing a full human being and making them promises regarding, you know, the kind of work that we do, uh, the bar that we hold the work to, the pride that we do the work with, and then, you know, making those promises and keeping them. Um, but also acknowledging me as few, full human beings. And whenever I've had any sort of personal issues or things that I need to take care of, like they, I'm very open with them and they know. And what that does is it gives them room to do the same, um, to say, hey, like I'm, I have a family matter that I need to take care of, or, or I have this issue, um, or I'm struggling with this client or, you know, and th it's a very open sort of um, environment. And I think that just that keeping that culture and, and really that sort of, um, really kind of open door in, in, in recognizing them as human beings, I think really makes it a little bit harder to burn out in the sense that, you know, it's not like we push and push and push and we don't, we don't acknowledge that like, Hey, I'm struggling. Um, and I, it's, again, that one's a little bit squishy and a little bit tougher, but I think that that was really, for me, the premise under which I created my company. Um, is I want to work with people who are going to make all these promises to our clients and, and we do, um, and then we keep them. And so that creates our reputation. That, and to me, when I have a client call me and talk to me about a project manager and how their response time is insane and how they're extremely professional and how they, they handle the really challenging situation really well, to me, and that was not in the room, to me, that's kind of a testament to to the culture that 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 I've that I've really built and and that you know with my people I've built for years and so that that's kind of um, you know it's a tougher thing to do and it's sort of like a thing that you do every day. Um, there's no like one program or one thing that we do, but it's just really acknowledging the, the humans and and knowing that you know the work is in the in the grand scheme of things. Uh, it, it's super high stakes work. It's really stressful, but it's not that important, right? Like it, it really is. perspective of what matters, <laughs> what matters most. Yeah, definitely. Exactly. And not to say like, I have weeks where I, I work 18 hour days. I have project managers who are answering emails at like nine o'clock on a Sunday. And I'm like, what are you doing? I'm like, why are you doing this? And it comes from their own sort of, um, you know, responsibility and understanding of those promises that they've made. And for me, if it's self kind of, you know, really comes from them and, and it's not, I'm not telling them like, hey, if you don't answer an email within 24 hours, you're going to be fired. I mean, that's no, it's really, they understand what we're about. Um, and so also when they have a, a hard thing that happened to them or something they're, they're having a, a, an issue with, it's going to be, um, we're all here, right? And because that, that thing of perspective and the things that matter make you realize that you're part of something bigger. And when you're part of something bigger, it, it, it gives you meaning. And so that's cool. But it also makes you realize that, um, that you're not doing it alone. And so you can ask for help. Mm -hmm. So it's this really neat um, sort of way of, of approaching work and, and life um, and, and, and really 
just bringing everyone together and saying, we're, we're all doing this together. It takes these massive teams to build these projects. You know this, you know, mm-hmm. it takes massive teams to acquire these buildings and to make everything happen. And so once you say, okay, it's not just me, uh, there's all of us and we're all people and I need your help. Like, that's what it's about for me. Um, and, and at the end of the day, that's what lets us keep the promises that, that we make um, to our clients. And that's what I think makes our project successful. Very nice. Very good insights. Very good advice. I definitely agree with you um, on, you know, several of the things that you said. Um, it just makes a huge difference when you can really um, have true team spirit, team cooperation, and yeah. derive a lot of joy and meaning from your work and your colleagues. It makes a huge yeah. difference. Definitely agree. Definitely. Yeah. All right. Well, now we have arrived to what we call the lightning round questions. So these are five questions that I ask all of the guests on our show. Are you ready? I'm ready. All right. So what do you actually do for fun? What's one of your hobbies? I play tennis. Nice. All right. Yeah. Very good. All right. And what is something interesting about you that most people don't know? Um, I can... Some background. So my husband's about six foot three. He's about 200 pounds and I can deadlift him. Wow. That is impressive. Wow. So it's, it's a, it's a really fun bar trick, party trick. (laughs) (laughs) That is definitely impressive. All right. What about as far as books, what book have you found to be, you know, really inspiring or influential to you in your career? Oh, in my career. Uh, there's, do I have to pick one? Cause I have two. Uh, <laughs> Go for two. Go ahead. Uh, marketing by Seth Godin. Uh, I think that's one. Um, and then the other one is the art of asking by Amanda Palmer. Nice. Okay. We'll be sure to add that to our recommended reading list. Um, now one of the things that we talk about here at Blue Lake is, and it's kind of what we were talking about earlier is, you know, this, everything is not just about money. It's not just about, we're not in real estate investing because it's all about the money and all we care about is money. You know, it's really about trying to live and build an extraordinary life. That is the goal for us personally. That is the goal for what we want to do for our investors, what we want to support them in. So what is your advice for people that are focused on building and living extraordinary lives? Oh, um, I mean, just show up every day. I, I think that that's, that's what we, you know, that's what I do. We just, you got to show up every day. Like even on the days that you don't necessarily feel like it. I think that that's, um, it's part of being grateful, really showing up every day. So. Very good insight. Yeah. Nice. All right. Now, last but not least, uh, Antonia, if people want to get in touch with you, how can they find you? Um, I'm fairly easy to find on Twitter. I don't know if you can share my, my Twitter, um, on your notes. Um, and then through my website, again, there's a, there's a contact section there. Uh, and then my info at mattproject.com or Antonia at mattproject.com. I'm pretty easy to find online. So if people write me a thoughtful message, I will respond. Awesome. All right. And yeah, we'll definitely be sure to include all of those details in our show notes. So thank you so much for taking time to come on the show. It was fun. It was interesting. I really appreciate your expertise and your insight. Thank you. Thanks so much, Jeanette. Yeah, definitely. And for those of you that tuned in with us today, thank you for your time. 
please don't forget to like, rate, and review the show. Leave us some comments and let us know, you know, other subjects you'd like to hear about. And in the meantime, be bold, be extraordinary, and keep moving forward. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.